Thanks for listening in. Um, the recording on Sunday failed, so this is Wednesday morning, and I am uh, going to go through my notes from Sunday and give you something to listen to to catch up on this sermon. We're starting a new series working through Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, and you will find, if you're here this coming Sunday, that you'll be able to pick up a devotional book that began on Sunday and that has daily readings for each day working through Philippians that you'll be able to do for the next eight weeks. So please make sure you pick up your copy of that um, and you can work through that with the rest of the church, which might also be getting some follow-up in life groups uh, through this next time. When you set out on many of life's greatest adventures, you have very little idea, really, of what you're embarking on of the highs and lows that are going to be involved along the way. And that's probably a good thing. Uh, My greatest adventures have probably been these. Marriage, uh, being a school teacher, being a parent, being a pastor. And each of those has undoubtedly been better and tougher than I could have imagined. Which is also true of becoming a follower of Jesus. Um, I first made a commitment to Jesus when I was 12. I'd been listening to a preacher in my uh, local church one Sunday evening, and uh, I felt convicted of my sin and remember uh, kneeling with my mum on on my bedroom floor that evening as she prayed for me. Uh, Sadly, I didn't do much with that for a few years until I was 16 and uh, my parents moved church and suddenly the whole thing came alive to me. And then I was baptized at 18 and so on and so on. But at each stage, I only really had a small idea of what was involved. And it's been an adventure ever since then, an adventure that's been both better and tougher than I could have imagined. And I I dare say, if you're a Christian, you found the same. And I suspect that was Lydia's experience too. You can read the story of Lydia in Acts chapter 16. She was the first follower of Jesus in Philippi around 15 years after Jesus' resurrection. It happened like this. Paul and Barnabas were on their second missionary journey, and they came to this important city, Philippi, where they met Lydia, who believed their message about Jesus and became a believer. And then her whole household became believers, then another household, and so on, all in the context of miracles and opposition. Now, Lydia and the other disciples, beca- uh, the others, became disciples of Jesus. That was the usual word of that time for, uh, for a trainee, an apprentice, someone on the journey of learning from and becoming more like their teacher. In this case, becoming more like Jesus. And if you're a Christian, remember this, that that is the goal to become more like Jesus every day, until at last you go to be with him forever. And it's very true that that is exactly where this adventure is heading, becoming like him, ultimately. John writes in his first letter, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Not like him in his saving work, but like him in who he is and how he is. So the the Christian goal is not simply learning about him. It's not only to gain experiences of him, however important they are, nor even to do things for him, though clearly that's very important, but to become more like him, to increasingly become a disciple of his. 
So we're going to look at eight themes in this letter, starting today with partnership, and they're all going to help us with this process of becoming more like Jesus, becoming disciples of his. So we're going to read uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 down to 18. See if you can look for all the partnership words and phrases, because that's the theme we're going to be looking at today. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to, to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that either way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. This letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi it's different to some of his other letters. For example, it's not a theological treatise like Romans. It's not a corrective letter like his two letters that we have to the church in Corinth. It's an expression instead of relationship, of partnership, of thanks to this church in Philippi, who Paul clearly loves very much. And as such, it contains themes that are hugely helpful to any disciple at any time. Things like this, how do I endure hardship well? Things like, what does a wholehearted follower of Jesus really look like? And today, what does it really mean to be a community of Jesus followers in partnership together? That's our first theme, partnership. Because that is how Paul sees himself and these believers in Philippi. He sees him being in partnership with them. So he says in verses 4 and 5, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership, which is the Greek translation of the Greek word koinonia, means fellowship. It means participation. It's like a close association between people. It emphasizes what's common between them. It's a sharing of life and faith. You could say it's a doing life together word. 
And it's the same word that appears in verse 7, though not in our translation. All of you, he says, share. The root word of that is koinonia again. All of you share in God's grace with me. Now here's the challenge, or the dream. Imagine what Citygate would be like if each one of us thought of this church and its people and behaved towards this church and its people in those kind of terms. Imagine if we really were doing life together, if there truly was a place for everyone here. Imagine if we were truly together on this faith-filled adventure of following Jesus. Now that would be a kind of church worth partnering with. And Philippians 1 here is going to help us see how that could be possible. Because being in partnership like that would affect these three things. It would affect, number one, how I see you. It would affect how and why I engage with you. And thirdly, it would affect how I pray for you. Firstly, it would affect how I see you if I grasped hold of this term partnership. I wonder when you were last frustrated with a Christian, even cross with them. I wonder when you were last frustrated with this church, even cross perhaps about something happening in Citygate. Well, let me encourage you that at least that Christian or this church are hopefully not this bad. Police called a Sunday, cancelled a Sunday morning worship service in the town of Mount Clemens after fighting broke out in the congregation over who should be pastor at the Greater Morning Star Baptist Church. Five police officers were called to break up the disturbance during a service in which two rival ministers stood in the pulpit using separate microphones. While one led his group of church members in reading Psalm 122, the other and his followers tried to outshout them with a reading of Psalm 92. Under an agreement negotiated, foolishly I think, between the factions, each group's minister was supposed to take alternate Sundays. It was the one's turn, but the other told the congregation he was claiming the pulpit, quote, because I was elected your pastor and am supposed to preach. It was then that the fighting broke out. Now, we all know that you and I are not perfect, hopefully not that imperfect, but we're not, in, well, we're not perfect. So how are we as followers of Jesus supposed to imitate Paul by being in meaningful partnership together as followers of Jesus? Are we, are we meant to just ignore the challenges that clearly exist? Are we meant to put our head in the sand and just pretend? Or perhaps we're to assume that this letter that Paul writes to the Philippians just couldn't possibly apply to us. Maybe they were just wonderful and easygoing. No, none of those. We're meant to model and imitate Paul's partnership with the Philippians by seeing one another according to the truth of who we are. So Paul says here in verse 1, they are God's holy people. Again, in verse 1, he says they are in Christ Jesus. In verse 7, he says he knows they are, with him, recipients of God's grace. 
No wonder in verse 3 he thanks God every time he thinks of them. No wonder in verse 4 he's full of joy when he prays for them. No wonder in verse 7 they're in his heart. Verse 8 he longs for them with great affection. And no wonder in verses 9 to 11 he prays confidently for them like that. He knows they are precious to God and that affects dramatically how he sees them. If I saw everyone in Citygate more like that, it would undoubtedly change my sense of partnership with you. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, said this, I do not like to hear Christian people speak ill of one another, and I do not like to hear Christian people speak ill of the church. If Christ loves her, and is married to her, woe to you if you find fault with my master's bride. Have a great love for the people of God, he says. Even the poorest of them, the worst of them, he means. Count them to be the aristocrats of the world, the blood royal of the universe, the men and women who have angels to be their servants and who are made kings and priests unto God. That's a remarkable way, rightly, biblically, according to Philippians chapter 1, of seeing the church, of seeing the people of God. You might want to say, well, that's all very well, but if Spurgeon knew what I know about that Christian who winds me up, if Paul knew what I know about this church, he wouldn't be able to say what he's saying there. Well, let me read you just in case you think Philippian, the church in Philippi, was just wonderful and easy to get on with. Let me read you from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, chapter 1, verse 4. He, re- he writes this, I always thank my God for you, sounds very similar, doesn't it, because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, how about this, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end. That sounds like verse 6 of uh, uh, Philippians chapter 1 that we read, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Some of that sounds very similar to what we read in Philippians chapter 1. But this church in Corinth, of whom Paul writes in such amazing terms, was all over the place. They had all sorts of issues going on. 1 Corinthians is a famously corrective letter where Paul is addressing all sorts of very serious issues that he's heard about going on in that church. And yet he's able to still write to them in terms that are full of truth. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you. You've been enriched in every way. You don't lack any spiritual gift. He will keep you firm to the end. God is faithful. Paul is able to see this troubled church in Corinth with all its errors and problems still in terms of the truth about them, of who they are in Christ. So it's entirely possible to have a valid, I might say, dual vision when it comes to how I see God's people. As long as the vision of how God sees them is the dominant one in my thinking. There's such a thing as 
dominant eye theory. I didn't know this until recently, but apparently uh, everybody has a dominant eye, left eye, right eye, but one of them being dominant. I remember when I was back in Torquay um, at the cricket club, we had a very good uh, batsman at the club who actually played for Devon, uh, county cricketer, and he, one Friday evening at practice, was watching me play uh, and and then said to me, just play a few shots here. He was trying to work out which was my dominant eye. I think uh, working out which is your dominant eye can help in your performance at cricket. I don't think he could actually work out which was my dominant eye, which is probably why I wasn't very good. But I had a dominant eye. Paul here is able to have dual vision appropriately but his dominant view, his dominant eye on those he's writing to is truth. It's who God sees them, who they are in Christ. I wonder which is your dominant eye when it comes to Christians, when it comes to how you view the church. Is it to see all the problems? Is it primarily to see who they are in Christ? without denying the problems and the issues and the questions and the dilemmas that you might have. If we saw one another primarily as God declares us to be, well, I seriously think that would affect the partnership that we experience together. Let me encourage you not to ignore the issues, not to hide your head in the sand, not to be afraid to raise genuine concerns that you have, but to make sure that your dominant view of your fellow brothers and sisters is how Paul sees them, who they are in Christ, precious, loved, those whom Christ died for, those who will be with him forever, people who you will spend eternity with forever, rejoicing in Jesus. Secondly, partnership affects how and why I engage with you. You see, this idea of koinonia has much more about it than simply being in it together and seeing one another rightly. This partnership with one another is, in fact, God's grace to us, which means I'm going to engage with you with faith and purpose. The church, this partnership of believers, Citygate, is God's grace to us. So if you ask, how am I going to grow as a follower of Jesus? This is an adventure I'm on. This is a journey I'm on, and we're on together. How am I going to grow? How am I going to become more like Jesus? Well, the answer in large part is together. That's how it's going to happen, by being with one another, rubbing up against one another, learning from one another. And there's no doubt that modern Western Christians need to be regularly reminded of that. We are so far on the individualistic spectrum, end of the spectrum, that we need to be reminded regularly that New Testament Christianity is a together thing. And that is God's grace to us. We don't simply attend a church, go to a church, we together are a group of disciples on the journey of becoming more like him. One writer said this, 
loyal fellowship of believers is not an add-on to good doctrine. Fellowship of believers is often the vein through which the Saviour's blood pumps us whole and well. One young man was really struggling. He'd come to faith in Christ, but he just found himself drifting away, drifting in doubts and difficulties and losing his faith. And he went to see a wise older man who lived in a cottage, and there was a fire, a coal fire, in his room. And as they were talking, the young man told the older man what was going on in his life and faith. And the old wise man just didn't say anything. He didn't say anything at all, he just listened. He went to the fire, though, at one point. He got the tongs and he took a red-hot coal out of the fire and put it on the hearth. He still didn't say anything. And as the young man talked, he just allowed that coal to go from red-hot to black and dark. And then he got the tongs again and he put the coal back in the fire. And within a few minutes, the coal was red-hot again. He still didn't say anything. But the young man left knowing exactly why his faith had gone dull. The church is God's grace to us. This partnership is how we grow. Now you may have had some difficult experiences over time in the church with Christians. But again, to think rightly, to think as Paul does here in the letter to the Philippians, and he encourages them, remember that the church is God's grace to us. It is how we become more like Jesus, which becomes especially true in times of crisis. It's a story from 2019 of a pastor in England. His name is Brad, true story, and his wife is in hospital dying. And uh, Brad is sending various WhatsApp messages to a group of people caring for him and praying for him and his family. And he writes this in the midst of his tragic situation. He says, God has made all his people in part to be a group project. God made his people for the local church. I need my family, especially my children at this time, and Megan's family now, of course. But please understand me, I need the folks from this church just as much, if not more. I think the Bible bears this reality out. He asks, if you're a Christian, are you a member of a local church? Not a video church, not a satellite campus where the pastor doesn't know you, not your own home uh, church at home, and certainly not a solo Christian. A solo Christian is an oxymoron, like warm ice cream. He goes on, I really need the church right now. And they have been there. I don't just mean one or two of the paid staff team. I mean everybody. One couple with a relatively new baby themselves is watching our dog. Many are making meals. Others have watched our children, texted, prayed, sat with me and pointed me to Christ. Another couple who used to be members but moved to Northern Ireland are bringing a meal all the way from Belfast. This is the local church, he writes, a group of people saved by Jesus who live in roughly the same location and are committed to each other for each other's spiritual and practical good to the glory of God. It's like a little outpost of heaven on earth. I plead with all of you, 
be an actual, committed, formal member of a local church. You need it to obey Jesus. You need it to be more like Jesus. You need it for moments like the one I'm in. Koinonia, thinking of Brad's story there, Koinonia partnership, the fellowship of believers, is God's grace to me. Sure, there are challenges, but to stay hot for Jesus, I need the local church. To obey Jesus, I need the local church. To become more like Jesus, I need the local church. And I need the local church for moments like the one Brad was in. If you've been around Citygate for some time and you haven't yet come close enough to say, yeah, I'm joining this church, I'm becoming a member of this church. Well, we have a a rooted morning. We call it rooted. A short process of finding out more about this church. What does it mean to be here? What does it mean to be a functioning part in partnership with others in City Gates? That's on Sunday morning, the 10th of March, and you can sign up online on our website under the events section. Maybe you haven't joined a life group yet. Could you serve? Are you giving yet? All of these things, these ways of partnering are God's grace to you. Please make the most of that. So partnership affects how I see you and partnership affects how and why I engage with you. And thirdly, partnership affects how I pray for you. So we read these words in Philippians chapter 1 earlier. Paul says, verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And then down at verse 9, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If we're in partnership together, if this is koinonia, if I see you as God sees you and engage with you as God intended, this is how I'm going to pray for you, with joy and delight and confidence, as he says in verse 6, that God will keep working in you and complete his work in you. If you're not sure, perhaps, how to pray for those you're in partnership with, One great idea is to use Paul's letters as a model. He's often saying at the beginning of his letters what he's praying for those he's writing to. You can read his prayers at the beginning, near the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And Paul is hugely encouraged to pray for those he's in partnership with because of the truth that we've already mentioned in verse 6. He writes, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If I'm in partnership with you and confident that God is at work and will keep working until the very end, then I am encouraged to pray for you. Gordon Fee writes, This confidence of which Paul is writing there in verse 6. This confidence has very little to do with them and everything to do with God. I can pray with confidence, not because I just see great things all around me, but because God is great. 
and he is accomplishing his purposes. What an amazing way to pray, to see you rightly, to engage with you rightly, and to pray passionately and eagerly for you, confident in what God is doing in you. Please remember next week to pick up your devotional book if you don't have one yet. But as you just come to the end of this, of listening to this, what I'd like to ask you is, what's the one action that God might be asking you to take as a result of Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 18? Is it to get into partnership? To take part in our rooted morning in March? Is it to be committed to seeing this church differently and fellow believers differently? Is God calling you to engage differently? Is he calling you to pray differently for this church family? That's my personal action point out of this. To pray in terms like Paul prays. Just take a moment to think what your action point is out of this, and then I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture. Thank you for the way Paul instructs us so helpfully of what it means to be in this together, of how we become more like Jesus, of how this adventure of following Christ truly happens. Thank you for one another. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the worldwide church. Thank you for calling us into family under our great Heavenly Father. We ask you, Lord, that you will please cause Citygate to have a greater and greater sense of partnership, that each of us will see one another rightly, engage with one another wholeheartedly, and pray for one another, confident that you will complete your work that you've begun in us. In Jesus' name, amen.